All right, so it's the sixth episode of Star Trek Voyager. Did you expect that we would already see an Alpha Quadrant species? Uh, didn't necessarily surprise me. I It's a little disappointing because already they haven't figured out how to tell stories without going back to the old well of the Alpha Quadrant. That said, this particular story is more about this little moment of hope that, oh, we could, you know... Even as they said last week, we're starting to settle in. We're starting to realize, like, actually, this is 75 years. They are getting their hopes up. They are, you know, realizing, okay, maybe six weeks, but eight weeks, and then we got home. It was fine. It was this weird two-month period in the Delta Quadrant. Um, It's weird to me because watching Star Trek Voyager this time, I'm really struck by the fact that the the characters almost know that they're in a Star Trek show. Because (laughs) what I mean by that is... If this was an episode of TNG, they would have been home by now. Yeah, and yeah. so like that's how usually things work in Star Trek. And so, I, I and I mean, what I mean by that is like I don't know if the writers have really internalized yet what it actually means for the show because they've come up with this setting. They they've come up with this idea that the Star Trek, uh, the yeah. Starship Voyager is seventy five late year, seventy five years from home. And yet they keep going back to the well of, oh, maybe this is a way for us to get home. Oh, maybe this is a way for us to get home. And I don't know that that's the best use of their time. It's essentially Gilligan's Island then, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, The the Alpha Quadrant has had a few series to build itself up. Again, the Protoss world building and the, the original series. Uh, the world building through recurrence and just accretion in Next Generation and the more deliberate stuff done in Deep Space Nine, but I don't know what the Alpha, what the Delta Quadrant is. Right. Even the even the Gamma Quadrant. While we don't have as much of an idea of what it is, we know what the Dominion is. We know what its governing structure is. All of that because they were interested in the Gamma Quadrant a bit as a setting, and. It doesn't seem like they're interested in the Delta Quadrant as a setting. They haven't figured out what it is, what isn't. The, these Kazon, for example, uh, are they the equivalent of Klingons? Are they so? This it would be a perfect time. We've, we're seven episodes in. Why haven't we seen them again? If they're supposed to be this thing, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we will see the Kazon again. I think yeah. fairly soon, but. It is the kind of thing where, you know, I have the needle is, I mean, I like the idea for the episode and I, I, I'm not saying that I'm necessarily criticizing this episode in particular because I think if this type of story is the type of story they want to yeah. tell, it's done very well and there's a lot of things in the episode that I like. I sort of agree with you though that we've only seen, I think, what, five species so far? Yeah that are native to the Delta Quadrant. You know, we've seen Nalix's species, Kess's species, the Kazon, the, the Vidians, um, and, and the whatever the ones next next episode are. Um, I don't think I'm forgetting any. Uh, the creature from the cloud, if you want to yeah, count things like that. You know, but but that's kind of just a standard Star Trek thing. That's like the jellyfish yeah, yeah, yeah. encountered Farpoint. But it is the kind of thing where it, it, it's... I For such a high-concept show that Voyager is high setting high concept yeah. in the setting i don't know that they're they're not i mean i know that they're not super interested in ultimately establishing or world building this and i guess it's more a case of stay tuned and see where it goes sure but at least in these early episodes it i'm wondering how you feel about that because do you feel like this show has 
an, an identity or, or an idea no. of what it's doing yet. I don't think it does. I, I mean, uh, I, again, I'm thinking about how the first few times we saw Gamma Quadrant aliens, they were all kind of dicks, remember? And we all kind of got a... I was saying, like, oh, so that's the we, – we could see certain traits in common in the Gamma Quadrant. We could get certain feels about what it was like to be in there, and that was that was very interesting about it. This was a entirely new part of the galaxy that nobody had ever been. This is the Federation. They are extraordinarily curious about who lives there and what kind of place it is. And while I can appreciate – all we want to do is get home and we have to really worry about our ship and what's going on with that and do we have enough dilithium to get home or whatever technobabble word they want to use that week. Uh, yes, they have to be worrying about some of the more gritty details about just getting home and surviving, but it doesn't seem like they're very interested in what's around them. Well, it, it, they do and they don't, though, yeah. right? Yeah, because... well, we're told every few minutes, oh, we're scanning everything, oh, we're still doing our exploration, but... I mean, at least Neelix seems to think. I mean, Neelix is not in this episode, but but we have seen Neelix say before, like, you know, these people want to get home, but they keep stopping yeah. and scanning asteroids and going into nebulas and all kinds of crazy shit. Why aren't we just, ha- why don't we just yeah. plot a straight course for home? Where, and, you know, also the weird thing is that I, I don't really understand why Neelix and Kess want to go back to the Federation. I, yeah. There, there's a lot of, you know, it's they, one of those things where I don't, I think that I'm I'm talking about this more in terms of Voyager because I know where Voyager goes. I mean, Deep Space Nine also had some of these problems in the beginning, yeah. and I don't want to discount that. It, no, it, I am going through the last uh, the last DS9 I saw was What You Leave Behind, and that was a masterpiece of taking the guns, firing the guns that have been from the first episode. And so I do have that very good feeling about it. It's true. Yeah, and I think it, it, partly it's just hard to go back to a show that doesn't know what its identity is yet yeah. and, and really grapple with that. I'm, uh, but, but aside from that, I think that, that eye of the needle does a pretty good job of establishing that these people are starting to get really homesick. Yeah. We've already seen that a little bit, obviously. And I think that it's an interesting choice for the show to, you know they've done a pretty good job of i think establishing the the characters at least in the early days we know at least somewhat about what these people are like what their beliefs are what their different personalities are and aside from harry kim who i don't know he likes to sleep with a mask on but <laughs> <laughs> he's just basically an incontinent little puppy and you can't hate him but you know you don't always want him around but you know he's harry he's incontinent no no it's a metaphor Oh, okay, because I was about to say that I missed something. <laughs> that the, now they're getting to the point where it's starting to set in that they are 75 years from home. Yeah. They have no real way of getting back quickly. And it's it's and then suddenly they find this wormhole and, and they're latching on to anything that they could get them home. I don't think they're wrong to do that. Again, no. they're in the Star Trek universe. These problems are usually solved in 45 minutes. I just don't know, again, if the writers and the creators of a Star Trek Voyager, the way in which Star Trek has traditionally told its stories and the writers that moved over to Star Trek mm. Voyager specifically, I don't think had a lot of training or experience in this sort of 
serialized long form storytelling and i don't know that they're interested in it and i think that it's showing yeah the worst that they had in tng was oh well we we are at home at the end of this first episode but then in the season premiere next season we'll figure out how to get him back and the end and maybe later on we'll mention oh that was a weird day we had but that's about yeah that's about it because i think that i mean again i'm not very interested in keeping things back from you about star trek voyager i mean like for example last week i told you cast leaves it doesn't really matter that much um, that part of what I think is, is start to, to it kind of paradoxically, I think what's frustrating to me about these early episodes and, and I don't know if it's frustrating to you, but they are not ignoring the, the meta plot, right? They're not ignoring, I mean, they're ignoring some of it about the Maquis and things like that. But in terms of here is a lone Starfleet ship yeah, that yeah. is trying to get home every single episode that we watched so far, except for, maybe phage has had some part of that and i feel like star trek voyager gets a lot better and a lot more satisfying of a show in a couple of seasons when they basically ignore that okay when they're just on their route and discovering weird shit it hasn't bothered me necessarily but again to know that it's just aimless wandering from here on out essentially until the series finale and again, if I thought that for the pilot seemed to set up this arc about we have to find the second caretaker, and again, I, if, if that show would be interesting to have every so often they check in with a plot point to find another place to go. It turns out to be a false lead, and there's an adventure, whatever. But if they again, if they cared about that, if they cared about progressing the journey, it would be something. But I get the sense that the their physical position in space is irrelevant. They can pretty much see the same things later on that they could see early on, except more self-assured from the writer's end. I'm not sure what you mean. Like, it doesn't really matter how far from home they are. They're just going, they are just essentially always, we're far from home and we have to get home, right? It's not like there's a map that they're... I guess I'm explaining this poorly. They don't progress on their journey until it's time for the series to be over, right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So, I, well, they. I mean, yes and no. They do and they don't. And I, I, I kind of feel like one of the interesting choices that the show could have made would be to say, okay, it's going to take them 75 years to get home. So, what does it matter if it takes them 85? Yeah. Or 95? If they keep taking these detours and they're saying, okay, well, yeah. you know what? It's going to take us a really long time to get back. Maybe we, because really what it comes down to for me is this episode is a perfect example of, you know, they're not going to necessarily find a quicker way to get home yeah. if they set a, a straight course for home or they just aimlessly wander, like you said. Yeah. The the chances that they're going to encounter something to get them home faster are probably equally, equally as likely yeah. no matter what course they take. And they already know it's going to take them 75 years to get back. So most of the crew is going to be dead at that point. So to me, it's like, well, why not try and have a satisfying life then if it's going to take you that long to get home? If I mean, you know, of course, they could just set a, a straight course. And then if they have detours and stuff, that's fine if they find something interesting. Because there, there should have been, I well, think... This, this is your life philosophy, apparently. Like the, the, well, It seems like, well, no, this seems like a worldview thing almost. Well, because to me, it's like, okay, if it's going to take you 75 years to get back to, yeah. to where you feel comfortable to get back to your home, you're not going to survive that long. So, And even if you do, your home is 
going to be irrevocably changed. It's right. So why not? I mean, yes, yeah, set a straight course for home, but have a conversation about it and say, okay, we're setting a course, a straight course for home. But if we find interesting things, if we yeah. want to go and go to the gambling planet for a month because we're bored, we're going to do that because if it t- like if it if yeah. it was going to take them twenty years to get home, that would be different. But seventy five is such a long time that again, it doesn't necessarily matter if it takes them seventy five or eighty yeah. or eighty five or ninety or a hundred because After they're all, all going to be dead. This is a universe in which a beam from a creature did push them to the other end of the galaxy. There, there, there are wormholes. There could be something, and yeah, that could be in any, any direction. Any of these planets could could be that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's engage with the episode then, because I I, I do like this yeah. episode. I, I think it's it's well done, and it's also a good example of the show. I think to some degree, committing to the emotional reality yeah. of the situation, if not the actual reality of the situation. Well, there is something that we in a lot of these episodes, a character's life is in danger, right? And you're going to say, well, they're not going to kill them off at this point. Um, we, we, I was in no worry that Neelix, for example, would not figure out a way to get along at the end of that episode. We know they're not going to completely chain, make that kind of a change so early on in the thing. They're not going to kill off somebody in episode five. Okay. So in this way, this episode gave kind of the opposite feeling of that is in we know they're not going to get back to the Alpha Quadrant in this episode and a message probably will not get out. And so the there is that element of how is it going to happen and you know that it does turn out to be – I mean it's a very futile and frankly a very bleak episode in a lot of ways. I, I think so and I, I like that starkness too. Yeah. I, I think that the the point of the episode is not the plot. The point is – what does this glimmer of hope yeah. do to these people? And I think that they seem the most alive that they've seemed. I think that they're very excited. Yeah. And I mean, at, at the beginning when she's going into the wormhole, she's delighted. She's we, We've talked about Janeway as the scientist. She's totally geeking out over this, over this thing. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I like about Janeway is that almost each episode gives her a chance yeah. to say, I think what we're seeing here <laughs> is a Technobabble X. And I like that. I like that she is someone who is both engaged with the science and and knows a lot about it and is able to uh, theorize. I mean, she has a very, even in these early episodes, I think that we see that that Janeway has a very interesting mind, especially in the way that it works. I I think related to that is the conversation that she has with Kess when... She's saying, you know, the doctor, he's a hologram, he's programmed, he's – which is the complete opposite of what we have reviewed about data in Next Generation, that Janeway comes from this – now, Kes is very easily able to kind of talk her out of that worldview because she is is a captain on a Star Trek show, sure, but the fact that she comes to it from the scientific view, just thinking about the programming of – of the doctor is very unusual. I would say that very I, I, striking. Yeah. Again, that's something that Picard very naturally came to the conclusion. Well, just because we're made of flesh and blood, we're no less machines than data is. And just because he's, you know, made of positronics doesn't, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, I, I, I this is a good opportunity to talk about the doctor because I, I, yeah. I find that they're doing something really interesting with his character. I think and... he's one of my favorite characters so far. Yeah. And so 
the doctor very quickly got established as as a comic relief character and and now they are definitely pivoting away from that he is not comic relief anymore and what i find interesting about the doctor so far is you know you bring up data which i think is a good a good analogy to this character because he is an artificial life form he is not uh quote unquote real but no one is dealing with the doctor at on that level except for for Cass. yeah and Janeway's reaction to that conversation that Cass has with her where she comes to her and she says, you know, look, if you had a crew member who was being talked to badly, who was being ignored, who felt like his needs were not being met, uh, what would you do? And, and of course, Janeway says, well, I would be horrified and and I would want to to help. And 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 then, you know, Cass says, well, look, the doctor is like that. And and Janeway is scoffing at her. And I think that part of the reason for that is, of course, that the doctor is a hologram. And what... What experience do Star Trek characters have with holograms? Yeah, it's recreation. With, with the dumb, dumb as rocks ones that are in the holodeck, right? Like, no one seems to really believe that any of the people in that bar in Marseille are yeah, real yeah. people. They are definitely done well enough that you can have a bit of fun with them. But if you ask them a question that is outside the parameters yeah, of the yeah. program, they're not really going to have an answer. Whereas the doctor has been apparently programmed and designed to be able to learn, to be able to uh, experience, make judgments. I think that actually in the next episode, one of the failings of that episode, I think, was that they did not talk, because there's another little beat in there about Kess talking to the doctor at the very beginning of the episode about, you know, why do you think you're not a a real person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the doctor says, well, I'm just, you know, I'm able to make judgments because I was programmed to. And, you know, a key counterpoint to that, I think, would have been Kess saying, yeah, but you came up with this radical yeah, new yeah. theory to save Neelix's life two weeks ago when you know you you created a holographic lung. Were you programmed with that knowledge? Yeah, that's a bit more than just simply accessing programs. She go, she does go with this regular Star Trek. Uh, again, I'm dealing with memories. How is that different from files? And again, a machine, flesh and blood is the same uh, basic thing. I, I like that he is... In fact, I would say the initially having him be the comic character adds a little twist to it because, again, he's he's just a hologram. And now that he's actually feeling something, it's a bit uh, – I don't know. You, you feel almost a little bit guilty that, it, you know, in the first episode when his imager is uh, being messed up, that, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, but all if you if you think back to all of the comic relief that the Doctor had in the first few episodes of the series, it was all surrounding – either people being a dick yeah. to him or people ignoring him. And and now that that has been explicitly called out, at least on Janeway's part, I think that you see that the doctor is becoming more of a, uh, I, I don't mean to, to say this as a pun, but a three-dimensional character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Janeway, again, Janeway does come, come out of that attitude quickly and she, She's giving him the ability to activate, deactivate his program, but more importantly, the fact that she's simply asking him, him anything that he would like and um, saying you're a member of my crew, I mean, that empowers him at the end. He does feel – I mean, there is a very – with her uh, – uh, she almost comes off as somebody who – thinks of themselves as very liberal, not really racist, and then you explain institutional racism and gerrymandering, for example, and – you know, oh no, you're right. It's it's a little deeper than that, and I didn't, you know, even recognize. You know, she she's uh, again. If these are entertainment people, 
another example is kind of people not treating waiters and waitresses as quite human. She's recognizing that, no, they are actually a person here. They are? They are. Oh, that's why I tip them. Yeah. No, I think you're no, right. You know, I don't believe in tips because, you know, I think they should be given a real wage. So I'm not tipping in order to foster that. I, I think you're right. And I think that it, it's key to the doctor's development so far, of course, yeah. that, you know, he also wants to, to get a name. I mean, he says at the end of the episode, he wants a name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's interesting. Um I do like that Janeway says, oh, I was just about to have a cup of soup as her snack. And then she orders vegetable bouillon, <laughs> not vegetable soup, but vegetable bouillon. Yeah, it's basically like, why are you eating this? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's not even that nourishing or anyway, good, good for Janeway. It's just something she grew up drinking <laughs> in Indiana. That's what they do. <laughs> I, I mean, if this is they, – they've, re- they've done a lot to characterize – you know, the captains and everybody by their drink orders, you know, or a great tea hot says something very definite about Picard or, you know, everybody ordering Ractaginos in DS9 says something very different. So then just, Yeah, because oh, they all want really, really dark, strong coffee to make them as jittery as possible. They're all stressed and overworked and they just need something to keep them awake. Yeah. And and Janeway needs vegetable bouillon, I guess. <laughs> stave off scurvy. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I think that's a little strange, but I I do wonder about you know some of the other characters in this episode specifically yeah. because you know again we're doing this thing where we're not talking about the plot of the Voyager episode very much because the plot was fine. It's fine. It was... It's well constructed. It moves along, but it's really about what it's doing to these people. Yeah, and, and... I wish the show were a bit more because it does seem like it's trying to tread a line uh, between. It, it wants to focus on the plot. It doesn't necessarily want to have a overarching character arcs and things like that. It doesn't really – it's not really invested into uh, characters with extreme backstories or anything like that yet. But at the same time, it is it is more interested in the characters and it is more focused on the characters or than it is on the mechanics of the plot. Again, this this, this seems like one of those shows where they – had just put, you know, insert techno babble here and had an intern fill it in, right? Like, that's what they did. Yeah. So they, no, I'm, no, not, I know, I know, I know that when they wrote a script, they actually, I think they used the word tech. Yeah. So they would say, like, tech the tech. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. No, I know. The, uh, yeah. So, and then they would have the science guy come up with something <laughs> that sounded vaguely plausible. Yeah. Exactly. Basically, it's, oh, there's a ship and it's attacking us. Oh, we have some kind of problem. Oh, Bolana can figure it out. The, Active part of that is that Bolanas figured out how to counter something that's happened, and it is more in, in, invested in her and her rising to that occasion or whatever. That's, yeah, that's what those beats are. I guess maybe, but but it's still trying to. But there is a lot of techno babble for something they don't care about. I guess is the point. Yeah, and that is. I mean, we'll talk about that at some point. I mean, I think that Voyager does have a reputation for for being the techno babble show. And that is true. And I don't really know why that is, but that's something for us to talk about later. I, I, I like that, you know, it's interesting because I think the show is, is trying to, to do different pairings, of course. I mean, we see yeah. that in the next episode with Tuvok and Paris, who haven't really been in many scenes together before. And in this episode, you have Bellana and, and, and Harry working together. Yeah. And I, I like that pairing. I think that it's, it's, they have a nice dynamic because... Bellana calls him Starfleet. She has a little nickname for him. That, yeah. They're doing little subtle things to, in the way that these people talk to each other, that characterizes them more, I think, than 
actually having yeah. these long depth in-depth conversations about their emotions because they have that little scene in engineering where Harry and Kim are, Harry and, and um uh, Balan are talking about their families. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about that is Harry kind of doesn't have a personality yeah because he's 22 and he's a parents boy and yeah he's well, very yeah. focused on his and i'm not saying that's a bad thing he's very focused on his family he you can see harry kim as a person who really really did well in school didn't have many friends decided to go to starfleet academy because he is yeah. very very intelligent spent a lot of time with his parents he has a very strong relationship with them and now he is he, thrust across yeah, the galaxy and never he has had no he has no ability really to 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 connect with people because he hasn't had to well he's never had really hardship again if he's had no friends he probably wasn't you know bullied to the point of near suicide or anything like that and i mean does that even happen in the federation i i i don't well it does in the 2009 star trek movie where you see young spock being bullied anyway um we'll talk about that in like <laughs> 15 years but yeah um yeah harry kim had probably just had a bland a bringing the you know the only fact that you know he is the only unusual thing about him is that he's not white. Otherwise, he is just your generic, you know, all-American character. And, yeah, that nickname of Starfleet, in a way, is kind of she, – she thinks he's a goody-good, in a way. Yeah. But, but she does like him. She doesn't really, like I, – I, I think she recognizes that his path in life was very different from hers, and he's not – yeah, she comes from a broken home, essentially. Yeah, and he... She's dealing with being half Klingon. Yeah, and... But the thing is, he's capable of understanding where she's coming from. She she does need to share her background, is, but he does get it. He does feel some compassion about that. He's... You know, he he's not being cocky about it. He doesn't he doesn't think he's better than her in a way. No, no. I, I I think that Harry Kim is extremely insecure. Yeah, well, because I think he recognizes that he's not equipped to deal with the situation. That he is not, you know, independent. He's not as maybe grown up as some of the other people. And certainly between him and Balana, she's the much cooler person. She's much much more able to handle things. She may not necessarily think so. She may be talking about her rage and her temper and her lack of discipline and all of that but in harry kim's eyes she's the one who actually can be on her own yeah yeah well and i guess the last thing to talk about um would, would be the resolution of the episode so obviously of course as you said before they're they're not going to get home you know you you know that and the point yeah. of this episode is not to get them home the point of this episode is to put these characters in an emotional place yeah and i think it does a good job of that now did you find the the twist at the end it was surprising or interesting. I mean, it was very, it was, there were several cruel twists of the knife. Oh, he's from the, you know, they can't travel through the wormhole. Oh, he's a Romulan and he's being folk. So finally he's going to pass on the message, but he's from the past. Okay. Well, at least he can, but then he's died before. Right. Yeah. Now the real question is why does a random Starfleet starship have records on random dead Romulans? I know. Seems a little weird, but okay. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a, it's a very, it, it, it's how can we, how cruel can we make this? You know, how, how many more twists of the knife can we have so that it's, but. And I also think that, I mean, it does, you know, I, I don't want to see the show going down this well of, oh, here's a way we can get home. Damn, it yeah. doesn't work too much. But at least early on in the show, I think it works because it establishes 
how difficult it will be to get yeah. them home. And I guess there are some Kobayashi Maru elements here, right? Like, it, it, we know going into this episode that something is going to happen and the plan will not work and they will be no better off than they have been before. Just as, frankly, there have been a couple episodes where the cloud, for example, they end up wasting a lot more energy and they end up getting no actual ones. They know they have the moral victory. Yeah, yeah. The if they are in a situation where they are not going to achieve their goals, where they may end up failing, where they may not, you know, how are they facing that failure? And I mean, we see. I I think it's very striking that you know Janeway cries for a couple of moments, and then she's just like, "All right, well, we're going on." Um, again, this is a crew who has been kind of forced to be a little closer and more intimate with each other, just based on their circumstances. So. Uh, I think that Janeway is able to express, you know, all of the sides of, you know, the the tenderness and the toughness. She's, you know, that I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, th- I think she's earned enough that that doesn't come off as a cliche. She doesn't come off as over emotional or anything. She is allowed to, yeah. grieve for this moment. That that you know, there was there was a moment of hope she could have gotten her people through, and and in a very real way, Jane yeah. is grieving for the entire crew. Yeah, she, I mean, she is the stand-in for for the grief and the sadness yes. of the entire crew. She cries because the rest of her crew can't cry, kind of a thing that, or we can't show them all. Yeah, because that would take fourteen minutes. Oh, it would be so. And just play this. <laughs> It was a very, it was a very strange choice that the show made. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk about Expo's facto. I liked this one a lot in terms of plot. I think that it's fine. It, it, it's 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 maybe not the most relevatory episode, but Star Trek in general, I like it when it doesn't noir take off. And this was a very good noir takeoff. We had a Tuvok episode. We got to yeah, learn the, the, well, that's, the that's, tiniest that's... of things of that. The most exciting thing, we learned some information about Tuvok. But what information did we learn beyond? He's married. He's married. He's been married for 67 years, I think. He's an, he's a Vulcan that is like middle-aged. Yeah. So we we know all that. Yeah, I guess so. Um, what I, he's know, well, so, so, so I guess I, where, where I want to... I, I, I don't know if you had anything specific to say, but where I well, want... I, I think that just in terms of, of Tuvok, I think that what I like about Tuvok is that they created a Vulcan character that is different from what we would expect. Yeah. You know, most Vulcans, most specifically Spock, of course, because he is the Vulcan that yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is the elephant in the room of all Vulcans. And that... especially because he had the same pos- position as he and Tuvok have the same position, right? Like No. They're not for their first officers. Is oh shit, shit, shit. Okay, this this is showing how much I understand the where everybody is on Voyager. So Chakotay is the first officer. Tuvok is security officer. Okay, yes. But I, that's what I'm saying is that I like the fact that Tuvok is not a science okay. officer. He is a tactical guy. He is yeah. he is a, a detective. He is a security guy, and that makes sense because. Vulcans would be really yeah. good at that too. So it's it's establishing the Vulcan. It's establishing Tuvok as a little bit different from other Vulcans that we've seen, and also that he is still very very good at being a Vulcan. Yeah, I mean, I am obviously I'm comparing him to Spock in this episode. I'm also comparing him to Odo a bunch. Again, they they actually have the same position. Yes. And uh, thinking of Odo's reasons, no, no, Odo was the barber. <sighs> 
Anytime Oda was faced with a mystery, and especially in his days when he was... What haircuts to give someone. Exactly. Um, What does the same, you know, give me a haircut the way it's going to look like in two weeks mean exactly? Um, Humanoids. (laughs) When Oda became uh, the constable in Tarek Noor, you know, in the Cardassian days... Uh, and had to get very much wanted to cross, you know, toe that lawful line between uh, the Cardassians and the Bajorans. Um, I mean, for for Odo, his ruling uh, concept was law, just at, and for Tuvok, it's logic. They are very similar, but I think we're seeing the this is this episode is a good way of seeing kind of the differences in those personalities and where that's going. Um, Tuvok isn't as effusive as even Spock was, I would say. At least not not so far. I th- well, I yeah, I, that's right because I I think that one of the underappreciated things about Voyager, and yeah. I, I think there are a lot of underappreciated things about Voyager, which we will get to over the yeah, yeah. you know seven seasons of the show that we talk about. That I think Tim Russ does a really I like his performance yeah. very much. I think like like I talked about. Um, in one of the patron specials a couple months ago, one of the things that always bothers me about the way Vulcans yeah. are portrayed by you know guest actors of the week is that they're portrayed as these emotionless robots and they're not very interesting performances. Tim Ross is really, really good at playing yeah. a Vulcan. And you're right. He's playing a more dispassionate Vulcan primarily because he's a Vulcan. He's not a half, yeah. he's not half Vulcan, half human like Spock was. And so Spock had these you know, conflicting, yeah. uh, you know, parts of his nature that were making him out to be a little bit less of a Vulcan than perhaps he would want to be. Whereas Tuvok has none of those problems. I also think it's interesting that Tuvok doesn't seem to feel as out of place as Spock sometimes did. And maybe we will see more of this, but uh, Spock did very feel, feel – Spock was defined by feeling torn between – you know, human and Vulcan, but he also did feel very out of place on the human ship, and a way that you would think being full Vulcan would amplify that. Tuvok doesn't see, doesn't seem to be a concern for him. Well, yeah, I think part of that is just the the changing nature of Star Trek from, yes, from the original series it is. to Voyager. I mean, Spock was the only non-human yes, crew member that's... on the Enterprise, whereas Tuvok is not on Voyager. I guess where, what I thought was very interesting is we see kind of a beginnings of at, at the end of this episode, Paris professes his friendship to, to Vok, and what I think was I, I guess noticing certain subtleties in again, Tuvok is not a robot. He has very strong emo. He does have he, if he's a full blooded Vulcan, he's going to have extraordinarily strong emotions that he is controlling. When Tom is saying, "Oh, you." You know, you don't make many friends by reading, and uh, Tuvok basically just says, well, yes, and I'm I'm waiting for the, the butt in there, and he doesn't even say anything. He just kind of concedes Tom's point, and the fact that he does that is about as effusive of a profession – as an acceptance of that friendship as one could get from a Vulcan in a way. Yeah. I, I, I think it's very – and I think that kind of is – a. I can see also his demeanor affecting Janeway in some ways. Uh, there are a lot of points in this episode where she 
is holding insert in uh, her amusement a lot of times at things. She's very restrained about that, and I can see that as you know working so closely with Tuvok that she picks up a couple things from him. Yeah, I think that's right because I mean not not to not to talk about Janeway too much. I mean she's not uh, no this too much a, of a part of this episode, but which which was the right decision. Yeah, I think. yeah. I mean she's been a big part of most of the episode so far. So so let's get away from that a little bit and establish some of the other characters a little bit more. That she does have this. She, she's she has to be the captain. She she has to uh, be professional yeah. and be the the stern leader and everything. But she's also someone who's really amused by shit. Yeah, and I like that. But anyway, yeah, you get this again. You get the sense that she is stopping herself because if she fully gives into it, she's going to be cracking up for ten minutes, and she just can't do that. So she does that little smirk, and I love it. Yeah, and I think you're right that that one of the things that has sort of been established so far. I mean, we saw it in, in Caretaker a bit. Is that it seems as though Tuvok and Janeway have worked together yeah. for a very long time. She she relies on him very much. I think that there is an implicit level of trust there. And so Janeway has really no worries about Tuvok conducting this mm. investigation because she she has the experience and the knowledge of how he's going to perform his duties and how he's going to do. And that, yeah. you know, he is you know, because Janeway keeps saying we're devoted to proving Paris's innocence. Yeah. Tuvok never says that. No, he's devoted to the truth, whatever it happens to be. If he, he, he wants to find out the mystery, he wants to find, if Paris is guilty, he wants to prove that Paris is guilty. I mean, this is somebody who a couple of weeks ago said, well, Bellana punched somebody, we're keeping her in the brig. You know, that, that he, he doesn't really, you know, the logic side of him, it, it's just, he's more concerned about justice, I'd say. Yeah, he's more concerned with justice and he's more concerned with the the truth, whatever it may be, frankly. Which is, which is an interesting wrinkle when you're considering that, again, this is a situation in which the rules may need to be bent at certain times. Do you really, you know, with as few people on the ship as there are and with as good a pilot as Tom Paris is, can we really afford to lose him for, for this? So, you know, certainly... Uh, well, it does make you wonder that, that yeah. if Tuvok could not prove Paris's innocence yeah. or if Tuvok's investigation did prove satisfactorily to Janeway and, and the rest of, of the crew of the Voyager that Paris did murder this guy, yeah. or what frankly, would they if, have done? Or if the, the uh, judge or magistrate or whatever uh, said, well, it doesn't really matter, the sentence is... He, he, he turns out he is swayed by the argument at the end. He is... Uh, devoted towards justice uh, for the doctor who did commit this crime, but if he wasn't willing to be swayed, right? And you know what? What would that really? You know what would yeah. they do in that instance? I mean, can they really not have? As you're, you're right, can they really not have Paris? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's it. very nice. It's very good that he does turn out to be innocent. He does turn out to be the person he says he is. He, he even as, and I mean, he he again mentions his passes a prisoner in this episode he he was uh he is the kind of person whose background may lead one to think he is not the most trustworthy person but and i think also it's interesting that part of what causes paris to get put in the situation in the first place yeah. is the the level of trust and and acting in good faith of the federation because hmm. They just kind of go, yeah, okay, we'll we'll send you guys down there, and you can help them with the warp drive. Harry Kim will stop him if anything bad goes wrong. I mean, wasn't there like a bar Paris could have gone to instead? 
Yeah, but she was just so beautiful. I guess. I don't know. Well, that That's the other part of the episode. I mean, obviously, she is the femme fatale Yeah, character. you this have is to a film accept noir. a bunch of things happening because that's the genre. Right, it. right. But I think that it, it is the case where if you look at this episode too closely you can start to poke some some yeah. holes in it i mean i think the 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 actual mystery is is pretty well constructed no, it worked it, for it worked for that and i liked how the the biggest clue that this writing is there it, it they, they hide the big clue in plain sight the entire time as you know i i as tom paris is oh i thought that was just part of it yeah you're led to think that's just part of it yeah it, i thought that was very well done i i do i do like the fact that for example um the the memories are black and white because it's a film noir. Yeah, like I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, but <laughs> why not? I mean, that's fine. And they're also kind of poorly acted too, especially from the wife's right. No, Tom, stop! You know, it, it, that's a nice little subtle choice I picked up on. That yeah, I, I I liked it again. I think Star Trek does good noir episodes, and this was a good noir episode. Well, so this was directed by Lavar Burton. Okay, um, and I think he directed a few other episodes of the show as well. And uh, that was kind of interesting to me because I didn't notice that. I don't generally. I'm paying too much attention to what's going on screen to to you know notice the the credits yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. But um, I let you know I read about the episodes later usually and. That was interesting to me because I did notice in that opening scene with the doctor and Cass where they were talking in his office about, yeah. you know, is he a real person? What's going on? Cass trying to convince him that he has, you know, rights yeah, and responsibilities yeah, yeah. and he can do what he wants. Um, and that he wants a name, which is kind of interesting, which we'll talk about that. Uh, the, the, the choice of car- the choice of camera placement and movement was interesting. The direction of that scene was interesting because it was a little more dynamic than we usually yeah. see in Star Trek. It was a very, very slow moving camera that was outside of the office that slowly, 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 slowly moved in and re- oh. went through the door and then kind of went around them. And then, of course, it turned into a two shot situation. But I noticed that because it was just a little bit more, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, visually dynamic than than 90s Star Trek usually is hmm. okay I didn't notice that at all but that's because you're the film guy that's right so what what did you make about the doctor and Kessa's conversation well I mean both of their conversations I because we don't really talk as much about their relationship yes she certainly believes that he is you know a person and she is trying to convince him that he is more than he is yeah uh, well, uh, I don't think she's trying to convince him that he is more than he is. Well, well, not convince, but get him to realize and get him to own that in a way. Well, I think I think it's more that she's trying to convince him that he is more than he thinks he is. I, I guess that's a better way of phrasing it. I know. That's why I said <laughs> it. Um, I, I guess side note for a minute. Is Kess a little too good to be true? She is... A tiny bit of Mary Sue magical girlfriend, isn't she? Yeah. She, she, she can, she can make a garden. She can become a doctor. She has a photographic memory. She has like she, she has maybe psychic powers. Like her hair smells like fresh yeah, baked bread. Wh- I don't know. I'm why that up, is but. to ask it gently? What is she, why is she with Neelix? But I guess the other question is: Please, God, tell me they don't that the Kess and the doctor are not a thing 
No, no. Okay. Because, no. I mean, there was that moment where she kisses him on the cheek, and it, it I was just hoping that's a nice friendship kiss. Yeah, no, they, they don't. Okay. No, no they, they never fuck or oh, date God. or anything like that. No. Um, I mean, we the, the, the Cass and Neelix thing is, is very strange, and I have problems with it, especially with the way Neelix is portrayed later, but yeah. we'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah, I, I don't know why she's with Neelix. And I'm I, starting to lose my goodwill for him, I will say. Oh, I don't know. I like him. I mean, this episode where he said, what? What did he say? A mind what? I, I don't know. I just like that. He's like, he's the, he's the, he's the guy who doesn't know anything about yeah, Star Trek. So. so he's always like, what the fuck are you guys doing? What? What are you doing? Oh my God. Neelix is a Star, Star Wars fan stuck in a Star Trek show. He kind of is like a Star Wars character. <laughs> A little okay. bit. Okay, now I think I appreciate him again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's you know he's not my favorite character, <laughs> but he is fine, and they use him appropriately. <laughs> okay. I mean, he never becomes the first officer or something crazy like okay. that. They don't give him a uniform. But he is there get, an episode he where he has to a... command the ship for one episode, and it's terrifying? Because uh, that's what I, I would have pitched. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I would have pitched that episode. I mean, it's possible, but <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I Cass, you're right. I think Cass is a little bit of a problematic character. I, She is a little too good to be true. I don't know that it's really shown that she has any faults whatsoever. Yeah, I guess that's mostly she's compassionate. She's willing to speak her mind. She, you know, she just, just every positive quality that you can... And I, I, she also doesn't really seem to have any sort of interests of her own. Yeah, people. I mean, yeah, she wants to be a doctor, but that's I don't know. I mean, it just it, you're right. She is a little bit of a of a Mary Sue. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, little bit. it's not terrible. I like her because again, there's no way to not like her. No, but... she's great, and I think Jennifer Lean is a fine actress. It's sad what happened to her later on, but. What happened to her? I'll tell you off mic. Oh, God. It's too depressing for oh, this podcast. No. Okay. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think this is a fine episode. I, I, is there a lot of profound statements here about the human condition or Star Trek in general? No, not really. It's just an episode that tells us a little bit more yeah. about Tom Paris and Tuvok, and I think it does a good job with that. I mean, I like, again, I, I, I see echoes of the Kirk, Spock, McCoy in... Uh, Paris, Tuvok, and Harry Kim. I see kind of the very beginnings of that kind of a kind of a friendship. The you know Paris is kind of the failed Kirk, and Tuvok is the Vulcan, and Harry Kim is as innocent and guileless as McCoy can be. And I don't know. I I get, you're giving me a look, but so I guess my hope that the two of them turn out to be the young version of that doesn't come true. Uh, they actually um, get into a throuple. Aww. So. It was very progressive for its time. It was, yeah. I mean, Tuvok is alone, and his wife is in the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. It's only logical to be bisexual. So, you know, that's what happens. Well, you know, if he's having sex with a human, it's it's equally weird to have sex with somebody of your preferred gender as it is to have sex with an alien of your non-preferred gender. So, mm. you know, it's... What if you're open to one, you might as well be open to the other. Why not? Well, and you know, gender is also not a binary thing, so hey. let's let's leave that alone. <laughs> I guess finally, um the one thing that I would want to mention or talk about is why Okay, so 
<laughs> J- Chakotay and Balana, I mean, Balana's on the bridge because she needs to be there for the scene to yeah. work. Otherwise, it doesn't work. The Maquis thing hasn't really been brought up in a few episodes. Yeah. They bring it up very briefly in this episode only because they're being attacked by the new Miri and they need to yeah. have uh, this Maquis thing happen. Yeah. I, li- I I kind of liked that exchange because, number one, she does trust Chakotay to take the helm when he says, oh, I've got a great Maquis trick. And I, I, I think the pun... And the great Maquis trick is killing all of you Starfleet <laughs> Launch all the torpedoes at Voyager. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know that she trusts him twist. not to do that. Um, I, I think the punchline of that scene is that the brilliant Maquis trick, though, turns out to be this... And this is one of those moments where she is trying to contain her just hilarity at the situation. The Maki trick turns out to be, we're going to pretend to be disabled and then we'll fire. And, you know, they're not going to see it coming. I mean, you know, and, you know, there is that he does have that point, which, well, this is the Delta Quadrant. Every old trick is new again. They haven't seen all of this, which I think could be certainly a another theme for the series. But. You know the fact that he does, she's teasing him. I think about it. I I I think it's still, you know, but it does it does work. Certainly, it does turn out to be the trick that works. It, it is the usual. This is a theme that was handled a lot more sophisticatedly in DS Nine, but what wasn't that the Federation has all of this amazing technology and that it has phaser rifles that have 12 different settings and that, you know, we have the best minds and, and the Maquis was a bunch of terrorists who were using scrappy techniques and, you know, some situations, the scrappy techniques are going to work. They're not going to be as refined as Federation techniques, but at the end of the day, they got the job done. Yeah. I think that's what I got. I mean, from there's that a, re- situation. there's a reason why the United States lost the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's just kind of, yeah. Well, there's, a, yeah. Um, the Maquis are kind of janky and that's, that's fine. Yeah. I guess. Okay. Well, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes of Voyager we just talked about, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckabout. If you give us $5 a month or more, you will get our special patron episodes once a month. The one that we released for April was on Galaxy Quest. The best Star Trek film ever made. That is the only way you will ever be able to hear our thoughts on Galaxy Quest is if you pay us. So you definitely don't want to miss <laughs> that. Social media, we're on it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Trek About shows our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes review for Trek About. If you are enjoying the show... Next week, we are going to be talking about the Star Trek Voyager episodes, Emanations and Prime Factors, which has nothing to do with the Prime Directive. Oh. Or maybe it does. I don't remember. Hmm.